Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Sometimes the best part of the sermon isn't actually part of the sermon, it's what happens after the sermon. It's what happens when uh, the sermon raises questions that need answers, and in those conversations, sometimes the, the deepest and most profound things take place. And that's true for Peter's sermon at Pentecost, certainly. The most interesting thing, perhaps, maybe the, the clearest proclamation of the gospel that comes in this sermon comes after the sermon's done. It comes in response to the question of the hearers. It's interesting as we've been working through Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2, to see that that sermon's actually bookended by questions. If you go back to, uh, let's see, Acts 2, verse 12, after the uh, signs of Pentecost are witnessed, we read, all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? What does this mean? And Peter gets up to speak to answer that question. So his sermon is preached an answer to that question, to interpret for them what the things that they've witnessed actually mean. And now, as we come to the the close of that sermon, we see what happens after the sermon is over, another question is asked and answered. So we're picking up now in verse 37. In 36, as we saw last time, Peter makes his declaration of Christ, of Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And now we pick up in verse 37. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? That's the question. What shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you, and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. What does this mean, they ask? And Peter preaches a sermon to them. They hear the sermon, and they say, What shall we do? What do we do now? The Jesus who we crucified is the Messiah. What do we do? They act under that that conviction of their guilt, they turn to Peter, and in his response, in these few words, Calvin writes in commenting on Acts 2, we have almost the whole sum of Christianity. I don't know about you, but I'm always fascinated by passages that, that boil it all down, that, that condense it all. Uh, Christianity is complicated. 
it's complex. There are a lot of different doctrines, a lot of moving parts. The Bible teaches all sorts of things, and it's difficult sometimes to get a handle on it, to understand, like, what is the kernel of this? What is the core? Like, like where could I find a summary? And in Peter's response to their question, what shall we do? We get exactly that. What shall we do with our guilt? What shall we do with this Christ who has proclaimed to us, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for their forgiveness of sins? That's almost the whole sum of Christianity. That is the point. That is the call that is being made. In those words of Peter's, you have these two aspects. One is renunciation. Renunciation of self, renunciation of the world, a turning away from those things to turn toward God, to turn toward God and secondly, be delivered, to receive free forgiveness of sin so that you can be adopted as one of God's children. That's it. That's the gospel. And because all of this can only be accomplished by Christ, it's in his name that this gospel is proclaimed. Be baptized in his name, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. There's no other way, no other solution. That is the call of the gospel. They're convicted. They want to know what to do. And Peter tells them it's as simple as this, to repent and be baptized, to repent and believe. That word repent you think about the, the significance of what it means to repent. When they ask the question, what shall we do? Hopefully you can sense in the question the, the heart that that question is proceeding from. Luke tells us the effect of the sermon was to cut them to the heart. When we talk about the word of God and, and its sharpness like its power, like a double-edged sword to really uh, uh, slice through the sinews, the marrow, or to get to the heart of things. Here, you see that happening. They've had Christ proclaimed to them. They've had their responsibility for their own sin and for his death proclaimed to them, and it has cut them deeply. It's a wound. They're in pain at the words that they've heard. They uh, grieve at their sin. And that's a good start. That is a good start. It's the beginning of repentance. It's the entrance into godliness, this regret, this grieving for our sin. Most of us are so heedless, so careless of the idea that we have transgressed, that we've done anything that we're responsible for, that we're guilty of, that, that you need to be cut sometimes to feel it that you need to have something sliced to the heart of who you are before you'll actually see yourself truly. And that's what's happened here. Like that flow of guilt comes because they've been touched by it. They're no longer indifferent. They can listen to the teaching, listen to the gospel as they should. But that grieving, while it's a good start, it's actually not enough. It's not enough for them just to feel bad about what they've done. Cain felt bad about what he'd done. Cain grieved for the sin that he had committed. Judas felt bad about what he had done. He felt convicted for the evil that he had done. 
But in Cain's case and in Judas's case and in the case of many who grieve at the evil that they've done, despair kept them from submitting themselves to God. So just the grief wasn't enough because the grief could also lead to a despair, to a hopelessness that doesn't result in anything other than feeling bad. There must be more than grief. There must be more than feeling bad about what we've done. There must be a readiness to obey. We must lift up our mind with this hope of salvation to feel the conviction of sin, but be able to respond to that conviction, to do what Peter says to do, to repent. To repent. The Greek word that is translated here as repent is metanoeseta. Try that one. Metanoeseta. There's a reason I don't often quote the Greek for you. It's because I don't do it very well. But in this case, I think it's, it's significant because... Repent in English lacks some of the sense that repentance in Greek possesses. Um, It's a word that suggests turning away, a changing of your mind that comes from regret over your shortcomings or your errors. It signifies the conversion of the mind, that the whole person must be turned, must be renewed, must be made into a new person. That's what repentance implies. Uh, metanoia is, is the word, metanoia, for repentance. The meta part, that's, that's the prefix, that's the turning. But the noia, uh, noeo, is, is a rational reflection in Greek. It, it's like a, uh, a thought that you have, an internal uh, orientation, we might call it like a view of things, an inner contemplation. Noema is a thought. It's, it's a mindfulness, a state of mind, or a, a sense of purpose. When we speak of the effects of sin on the mind specifically, we call those the noetic effects of sin. Noetic having to do with the thought life. So the idea that because of our sin, we don't uh, know things as we should, that we don't reason as we should, that that even our mental faculties are corrupted by sin. That's the noetic effect of sin. So metanoia is, is a turning having to do with those noetic realities, the, the reality of the mind. And when we talk about changing your mind, sometimes that's a slight thing. But the kind of change of mind that repentance has in view is, is absolute. And I think of it this way. If you imagine yourself doing something that, that uh, we all did this morning, some of us more than others, looking in the mirror. If you're holding a mirror up to yourself, gazing at your reflection, contemplating what you look like, uh, something for some of us we've been trying to avoid, you look at yourself and around the edges of the mirror you can see the world around you, right? the, the world where we care about how we are perceived, how we are seen, and this is the way we live our lives, in a sense, gazing at our own reflections, considering how we fit into the world around us. Now picture yourself that way, holding your mirror in your hand where you can behold yourself and seeing around your mirror the world where you want to be loved, you want to be respected. And now imagine Peter's voice sounding in your ears saying, turn around, turn around, repent. And you turn, you lower your mirror, and you find Christ standing there. That gives you some sense of what it is that Peter's saying. 
when he says to repent. What he's saying is to turn your back on self, to turn your back on the world, to face Christ, to face Christ. Repentance does involve a a grief over sin, like recognizing who we are. But when you think repentance, the, the thing that you find the hope of repentance in is the turning towards Christ, beholding Christ, contemplating Christ, letting our eyes be filled with Christ. That's the force of repentance. It's what we're being told to do. What he's saying, what Peter is saying to those who are grieved by their sin, who feel the guilt of what they've done. He's not saying wallow in it. He's not saying, yeah, you should feel bad. And instead, he gives them words of hope. He says, turn from it. Turn from it. Walk away from it. Whirl around. Stop facing it and face Christ instead. Turn to him instead. Contemplate him instead to repent. And and that repentance has belief wrapped up in it. It has hope wrapped up in it. So Peter says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. When Peter talks about baptism, what he has in mind is all that baptism signifies. So baptism here is another one of those words that you really need to feel the force of. When we went through Peter's epistles last year, when we worked through Peter, you saw Peter in 1 Peter 3 uh, has that that line where his baptism now saves you. But he's talking about the deliverance of Noah and the ark and how a few were preserved from the water. And the water has a sign value to it, obviously, that connects to baptism. And Peter says, baptism now saves you. It, It saves you not because of a ritual action, but because of what the sign signifies. Like he's referring to our cleansing in Christ. And he goes on to explain what he means. He, he talks about it as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have been sealed by that sign of baptism because of our right to participate in the death and the resurrection of Christ. This way of, of speaking of of using the word baptism to refer to all that baptism signifies is something that Westminster Confession calls the sacramental union. It says there's such a a tight connection between the sign and what it signifies, between the the table or the water and, and what benefits are offered in those signs that it's appropriate to speak of one in in reference to the other. So Peter says Baptism saves you, and we understand he's speaking of everything that is offered in the sign of baptism, of of the the cleansing of Christ offered. What's also significant is the way that Peter links this action of baptism to receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says to them to be baptized in the name of Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Spirit. The Spirit comes with the sign, which makes sense if you look at Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 13 and 14 to the way that Paul speaks about the Holy Spirit. 
He says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It was the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So when you heard the truth of the gospel and believed in him, Paul says, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, because the Spirit guarantees that you will receive the inheritance that has been promised, the life that has been promised. You receive the sign of baptism, and with it, the Spirit, who is the guarantee that everything that is signed for you will be received by you. The sacraments are signs and seals of the covenant of grace, not because of the outward rite that you see, but because of the Spirit working in them, the power of the Spirit in them. And the Spirit is given to all who believe, because all who believe have an inheritance coming, and they need a guarantee until they possess it. So Peter doesn't say, be baptized, and some of you, the really spiritual ones, might also eventually receive this gift of the Holy Spirit later on down the line. Instead, all of you, all of you who believe and receive this sign will receive the Holy Spirit, will receive this gift. You're entitled to it. That it seals a promise that was made to you. The first question that the crowd asks is sparked because they've witnessed the effects of people receiving this spirit. The spirit is poured out. This gift of tongues erupts. It fills them with wonder and awe, and so they ask, what does it mean? What's going on? But now, in answering their second question, Peter is telling them, not only will you witness this event, but you will enter into it. Not only will you see what the power of the Spirit does in the lives of others, but you will receive it too. You will be part of this thing that you have witnessed. What you have seen from the sidelines as an audience, as a crowd, you will now experience. You will be drawn into this. It is yours. And the question that they had to have asked is, how do, how do I know? If you think about the way that you, you witness things like this as a spectator, you've probably never gone to some public place and, and witnessed people speaking in, in your language without ever having been taught it or anything like that. But, but you do sometimes, if you go out enough, see some pretty strange things going on in the world around you. And I don't know about you, but I'm one of those people that when I see weird stuff happening on the street, I like to just go the other way. I know some people make different choices. They see weird things happening. They like to, to film those things with their phones and, and stream them online uh, to witness. But, but the thing that very rarely happens is that you're walking along the street and you witness something bizarre, and instead of walking away or instead of documenting it for your friends, you enter into it and become a part of it. It becomes a thing that's happening in you. Well, you're not just a witness to it, but you yourself are transformed by it. That's what's happening here. Peter is drawing them over the line. To the people who've witnessed this thing, he's reaching out and saying, repent and be baptized, and you will be part of this too. This will happen to you as well. The Spirit will be poured out on you. This gift will be given to you as well. How do I know? 
because he says the promise is to you. It will be yours because it is yours. It is for you. It has been promised to you. This is yours by right. Peter's reminding his Jewish audience how this stuff works. Right? They have this inheritance, this history of God's covenant relations. They ought to understand this is the way it works, but he's, he's reminding them God makes promises and then he keeps them. That's how God works. That's how his covenant making occurs. If the promise that's being fulfilled before your eyes is a promise that God made through his prophets to us, then the promise isn't just to the apostles. It's not just to the people that you've seen with this gift. The promise is to you too. You are one of the ones who who has a right to this. That's the effect of what he's saying. I'm talking to you. I'm preaching to you. I'm proclaiming Christ to you because this is for you. You have a part in this. They already know. They already know from their history. They already know even from the way they're speaking. In verse 29, as Peter is addressing them, he addresses them as brothers. When he's reminding them, brothers, David died. David is in the tomb. Remember that? Now they come to him and and, and to the other apostles, and they say, brothers, what must we do? They feel the kinship, that common implication. Peter is building on that. I've said this before, but it bears repeating that that one of the things that you're seeing here at Pentecost is continuity between Old Testament and New Testament. What's happening in the New Testament, what's happening in the early days of the church with the gospel, this is not like God's new and improved plan that sweeps away everything that he's ever done before, leaving behind just, you know, an Old Testament where there's a few little prophecies of the Messiah that are still important to us, but the rest of it, don't worry about that. Instead, there's a connection. There is something new and improved happening in the gospel, but it's new and improved in the sense that that fulfillments are always new and improved compared to the promises that they complete. So in that sense, it's new. But in order to understand it, you just have to look at the history behind it, what it comes out of. The gospel is new and improved because it's brought this new and improved understanding to us. But the kingdom that is being proclaimed, the kingdom of God being proclaimed by Peter is a kingdom of the covenant. It is a kingdom of the promise made over and over again, built upon brick by brick throughout the Old Testament. The Messiah being proclaimed to them is the Messiah they were waiting for over generation and generation. This is a fulfillment that builds on that promise. That promise, he says, is to you and to your children. It is to you and to your children. To the original audience, this would have been nothing new because, of course, they were accustomed to thinking covenantally. They understood that the relationship that the chosen people had with God was generational in this way. That's the way that it worked. God had said to Abraham in Genesis 17:7 I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you 
And it's when God says that, I will be your God and I will be the God of your children as well for generation after generation as I make this eternal covenant, their children received the sign of that covenant. They were accustomed to that. Their male children received the sign of circumcision. It was theirs by right at birth because they too were part of this covenant community. That would have made sense to them. We're the ones that have to reckon with this part. This, we're the ones this is weird to because the way we think about our relationship with God is very individual. Right? It's very much focused on ourselves and, and we don't think about the, the way that the promises that God has made to us flow from generation to generation. For them, they understood that's the way God works. But for us, again, because of that amnesia, because of the way that we've tended not to pay too much attention to how God reveals himself throughout the Old Testament, we don't think of it working quite that way. There was something new, something different that they would have had to get used to, of course, which was an expansion. Not only does the sign of, of initiation into the covenant change from circumcision to baptism, but now it's no longer just the male children, but all the children of the kingdom who receive the sign of the promise. The promise is to you and to your children and to those who are far off, meaning the Gentiles. This is the part that would have been a little weird to the original audience, the part we take for granted. The promise is to you and to your children, and they're thinking, of course it is. It always was. We are the children of Abraham. And Peter is saying, again, things he doesn't quite understand the significance of yet. It's only as the book of Acts progresses that Peter will come to terms with the implications of his word. But this is a promise made to you and to your children and to those who are far off and to the Gentiles as well. The mystery of the gospel that God from eternity had always intended his salvation to be more inclusive than we had imagined or understood. For all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. In Ephesians 2, this is the way that, that Paul speaks to his Gentile audience. And the Apostle Paul, as the apostle to the Gentiles, says, Now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Again, that call to repentance is a call that reaches out. It is dragging people across to this side of the line. They're saying, this is for you as well. This is for you too. That's the character of the kingdom that's being proclaimed here. Remember how Joel had put it, this is the age when everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is the character of this covenantal kingdom. So Peter says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. We don't have everything recorded for us that he says. He goes on and he says more, but, but, but it, it's summed up in those words, save yourself from this crooked generation. Don't go the way of the world. Don't just go the way you've been going. Don't take for granted what everybody takes for granted. Instead, turn, repent, turn away from that towards Christ. They're convicted of their sins, and Peter gives them hope. 
if you were alive and listening to the radio in 1987, then you heard the Pet Shop Boys sing their hit song, It's a Sin, approximately 10 million times. Um, I was fascinated by this song because I would listen to it and try to figure out the lyrics, which, which is not something I'm good at. So a lot of my favorite songs, I have my own version of lyrics to, which I thought is what they said. And, and actually they say other things that I'd like to think are less interesting than, than my version of the song. But this is one I really listened to as a Christian because everything sounds correct if you read it literally, but I know it's not meant to be taken that way. For those of you who didn't have the pleasure, uh, give you a taste of, of the words, the lyrics to this song. So I'm not going to sing it. Don't worry. But uh, when I look back upon my life, it's always with a sense of shame. I've always been the one to blame for everything I long to do, no matter when or where or who has one thing in common, too. It's a sin. Everything I've ever done, everything I ever do, every place I've ever been, everywhere I'm going to, it's a sin. At school, they taught me how to be so pure in thought and word and deed, they didn't quite succeed. For everything I long to do, no matter when or where or who has one thing in common to, it's a sin. Father, forgive me, I tried not to do it, turned over a new leaf, then tore right through it. Whatever you taught me, I didn't believe it. Father, you fought me because I didn't care, and I still don't understand. So I look back upon my life forever with a sense of shame. I've always been the one to blame for everything I long to do, no matter when or where or who has one thing in common, too. It's a sin. At the end of the song, if you have acute ears, you can hear there's, there's kind of a Latin chanting thing going on, and it's actually a, a confession of sin from the Roman Catholic Mass. Uh, I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers, that I have sinned exceedingly in thought, word, act, and omission through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. Mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. It's a confession of sin. Uh, we do a confession of sin every week. Uh, you could almost take the lyrics of the song and substitute them for your confession, and you'd have it pretty much right. And yet, when I heard the song over and over and over again, I understood that it wasn't meant to be taken quite so literally. That it wasn't good to look at your life with a sense of shame. That if everything was a sin, then really nothing is a sin. We're just being made to feel bad about things we shouldn't have to feel bad about. The song was actually written apparently, over the course of 15 minutes or so, to exorcise, to, to work through bad feelings that the author had as a result of his religious upbringing. It's a common response to the call to repent. Denial. Denial. You tell me everything that I've done is a sin, everything that I long for, everything that I do is, is sinful, is evil, and that basically means there's nothing that I can do right and there's nothing I can do to please you. Uh, I reject it all. That's how a lot of us are when, when we hear a call to repent. Repent from what? I'm no worse than you are. I'm better than you are. What do I have to repent of? What have I done? We shouldn't pass down shame and guilt. That shouldn't be the legacy that our children inherit from us should reject that entirely. 
I think that's the sense in which the song is intended. But but you could take it literally. Like you could think about all those things and and in the 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 deep black pit of your Calvinist heart, say to yourself, yeah. Yeah, everything is is sinful. Everything, every good that I desire to do is totally corrupt, and and I am totally corrupt and and abjectly bad, and you can succumb to despair. There is no hope. It's true. Nothing I can do is good enough. Nothing I do measures up. Even my desire to reform myself, to turn over a new leaf and start being good, like to, to put my affairs in order, none of that works. There's no hope for me at all. I've been cut to the heart, and I just have to lay here bleeding to spare. I can understand, by the way, why if these were the only two options, people might choose denial. And I will admit that the way that that a lot of, or at least some, people within the, the larger Christian world talk about sin, it does lead you to believe these are the only two options. Right. Don't deny it. Instead, despair. Despair. Be ashamed. Be very ashamed. But the gospel isn't intended to shame us. The gospel is not intended to bring us to the point of despair. The gospel is intended to bring us to the point of delight, to hope, to kindle within us a hope. There is no shame in admitting that everything I've ever done, everything I ever do is a sin if you believe that there is forgiveness for everything. You don't have to deny what it is if you know that there is forgiveness even for the worst that you've done. Owning it. Owning the sin because the sin is forgiven. That's the path to delight. That's the rule of true faith, Calvin says. It's when I'm persuaded that salvation is mine because the promise that offers salvation applies to me. That it's not just a doctrine. It's not just an abstract idea. It's a promise made to you specifically, to you personally. You will be forgiven. The word that Peter preached proclaimed the promise of salvation and the spirit that they had witnessed was the seal of that promise. And and Peter is saying to them, the promise is yours. Believe in it. Have hope in it. Put your faith in this. This belongs to you. This is such an expression of grace. Peter's speaking to the people who are responsible for the death of his Lord. And he has them where he wants them. If we were telling this story, this would be the perfect setup for revenge. It would be, you crucified my Lord, prepare to die, right? But instead, Peter's gospel is, you crucified my Lord, prepare to live. You crucified Jesus, but the promise is to you and to your children. Those two things go together. The thing that causes the despair, the grief, the thing that cuts to the heart is the very thing that gives hope. That the promise of salvation is for you that Christ is for you. In denial, we hear that the charge of sin doesn't apply to us. Denial says, don't listen to it. There's no such thing. You don't need to worry about this. You haven't done anything wrong. You don't need a promise of salvation. It's kind of an insult. 
to even talk to you this way. That's denial speaking. Despair says the charge of sin applies, but the promise of salvation doesn't. A lot of people who hate this idea of God's covenant, God's sovereignty, hate it precisely because this is the way they hear it. That the despair is real, but the hope is not. They hear the promise, they imagine the promise is saying no, but the promise is saying yes. Delight comes when we confess that the charge of sin applies to me, but the promise of salvation applies to me too. The only way we can confess our sins before God is knowing that they are forgiven in Christ, that we repent and believe. Don't answer the charge with denial. Don't try to hide it. Don't try to to explain what you've done so that it doesn't seem so bad. But don't answer it with despair. Don't answer it with hopelessness. Don't answer it by wallowing in, in, in pity over what a bad person you are. Instead, call upon the name of the Lord. This promise is for you and for your children. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. When the accuser comes and charges you, on your worst day, when you look in the mirror and what you see is impossible to look at, don't answer that with denial. Don't answer it with despair. Answer it with Jesus. Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.